This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Welcome back, everyone. We'd like to carry on with our panel discussion uh, featuring four former editors of the Villanovan. We have uh, and baby. Uh, Marianne and one baby. A future editor, too. <laughs> and a future <laughs> editor. Uh, Marianne Lavelle uh, is now senior editor of Energy uh, National Geographic Digital Media. Uh, we have uh, Larry Joannis, who is chief executive officer at uh, Andros Risk Services. Um, Jim DiLorenzo, founder and CEO of Jim DiLorenzo Public Relations. And uh, Kate Zemanski, uh, director of communication and uh, professor in the English department here at Villanova. Um, if you all would like to, one at a time, uh, introduce yourselves and uh, tell what your position was uh, on the Villanovan and, and talk a little bit about um, uh, what working on the Villanovan meant to you and, and what you think of this digitization project. That would be great. Good luck. Should we go? I'll start? Okay. Um, well, well, first of all, I want to just thank uh, everyone who worked on this project. Um, it's funny um, for me, being on the Villanovan was just such a big part of what I did here at Villanova. And when I looked uh, around, I realized what a small part of the history <laughs> of Villanova. I mean, one one hundredth of the of the uh, history of this paper. But there's something about being a small part of something that's so big that um, made you care about it too. And um, uh, work to preserve it and uh, have it be there for us and for everyone to to really um, you, you know look back and, and see uh, some insights about where we are now from our past and I really um, so appreciate it. and sorry I'm losing my voice I'm going to try to project as well as I can uh, I'll just open really quickly by talking about what I do now I'm an editor at National Geographic's website and I'm uh, responsible for one subject area, which is energy, which is a very important subject for National Geographic. Uh, National Geographic's mission is inspiring people to care about the planet. And uh, there's just nowhere where people on the planet are more in conflict these days uh, than over energy. We need energy to fuel civilization, and yet the way that we go about um, deriving our energy now, mostly from fossil fuels, is, is a very big threat to the planet. One of the, one of the biggest threats we face. And um, energy seems like a very big problem when we think of uh, the energy we use on our flat screen TVs and our mo mobile devices and everything here. But it's an even bigger problem when you think of the 1.5 um, billion people in the world who have no electricity at all, uh, five times the population of, of the U.S. And the three billion people who are cooking on primitive cook stoves and uh, wood and dung, and uh, it's a very uh, big challenge that we face in trying to find a way to provide energy in a cleaner way and, and help to end the cycle of poverty that uh, really energy is very much intertwined with and you abs absolutely have to approach that subject with a great deal of humility 
and it's, it's within National Geographic's mission to approach it that you are part of the community, the world community that is dealing with this challenge. And that's where uh, being an editor of the Villanovan was part of it, because you were part of the community that you were covering. And um, uh, <laughs> when, when you're part of the community and you care about the community, that doesn't mean you see everything is peachy and <laughs> and so you're scrutinizing uh, but you are caring about uh, about this community and I think that that's what resonates for me um, there's always this debate in journalism about objectivity and um, uh, detachment and how important that is and I do bl believe it's important to uh, not have your eyes clouded by bias but it's important uh, the value of the human eye over the camera's eye is, is that it's connected to a human heart. And that is, um, that's just so much of what I, I feel that I learned at Villanova. I went back and looked at Villanova's mission statement. Uh, not only is Villanova older than National Geographic as an institution, <laughs> it has a longer mission statement. So <laughs> but, but in a way, it's a great mission statement. Uh, it, it, um, has this inclusiveness and caring about uh, a more just, more peaceful world. And um, if you read about it, um, this phrase um, I wrote down, the university advances a deeper understanding of the relationship between faith and reason. And wow, that's a pursuit of a lifetime. <laughs> and um, uh, there, there's a moral um, compass or a moral sense about, and whether, it's your whatever faith you uh, tradition you're in and whatever your degree of faith at this time there was a sense of, of uh, we're we're in this as a community with a knowledge of what's right and wrong and trying our best to navigate that and I think back um, uh, at the calls we make, made and Beth uh, White Delaney's here we were on the Villanovan together and uh, She's right there. Oh, <laughs> oh there she is. Okay. Yeah. I want to say hi to her. As she <clears throat> knows, um, it was not always a comfortable place to be. And um, it, I can't even, looking back today, say that we always ma made the right decisions. But we always um, did our best, like guided by this reckoning of what we felt was just and right. <clears throat> and that was, um, that, that was uh, really I, I think what makes Villanova and the Villanovan special. Um, and the, the last thing I just wanted to say was about June Lytell, who was our, June Lytell Murphy, who was our advisor and our mentor. And um, it, it, she was, uh, when I think back my first conversation with her, she was the first person I knew who had an answering machine. And <laughs> that's how long ago it was, 1977, or when I started at Villanovan. And, at, at Villanova, and uh, she, uh, when I called her up, I was so nervous. Uh, I think I left her phone number on her own answer. <laughs> 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 uh, but she was such a person of such poise and uh, presence, and uh, so uh, it was very intimidating before you really got to know her and uh, have her as your advocate, which she was. And I think. 
that I never really appreciated at that time how hard that was because I was only here for a year but she was here for the long term and so every fight that we had and uh, every uncomfortable story we wrote whether it was about the new Connolly Center and the leaks in the roof and <laughs> or the um, it, you know problems at, at our time uh, not enough housing on campus to pick just one of the more benign <laughs> things um, Beth and I could talk about even more uncomfortable things but she was always um, really on our side and um, it, uh, there's uh, I don't know how many students are here uh, uh, they all have class and everything uh, I, I'm sure but when you go into journalism today it's really dire times for journalism uh, there's a lot of uh, I mean the whole business model of journalism has collapsed basically and uh, I've had a great run being in it for 32 years at, at this point, but I, I don't even know how long I will last. My energy project is funded by one advertiser at this point, uh, who's a multinational oil company. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so talk about every day, and I'm proud to say if you look at our coverage, we pull no punches, and there's... Uh, uh, if you want to see any pictures of what that Gulf oil spill looked like up close, you can uh, go to our website and, and see it in all uh, of its horror. Uh, but uh, really, uh, every day, kind of that moral compass and that moral reasoning is, is something that is, is um, just a really important um, part of what you do and when, when I when I think of uh, the model of courage and integrity and indomitable spirit uh, I, I think of June Lytell and that that is such such an inspiration uh, to me today I don't really want to follow that I'll let Jim go next um, I'll start out with my June Lytell memories um, uh, so, she, well, I signed up as a freshman for the Villanova back in 1980, um, even though I know I look a lot younger. But uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, whenever I think of her, I never had her for class. Some of the editors and writers had her for class. I never did. So I only knew her in the context of the paper. And I was somewhat, I would say, of a smart ass back in the day, as I still am oh, today. No. When we were sitting here, when the other uh, speakers were talking, Jim had all his notes here, and he turned his back, and I slipped his notes into my pocket, and he looked over, and he was getting all nervous, just to let you know what kind of wise ass I, I am. I just kind of knew it was him. <laughs> yeah, but, so, you know, I, not in a, uh, an evil way, but sort of a smart ass way. So anyway, every Tuesday, we would go down to this place down uh, Lancaster Ave to set up the paper and we in those days it was like ancient civilization you cut and you used wax and you put it on a form and it was and if there was a typo you had to cut the letter out and put another letter in so I can't remember the name of the place now RK Graphics that's it so um, I remember there was a Dunkin Donuts and a Roy Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I used to always make wisecracks constantly because we're there like six eight hours and everybody's getting on edge and I'm always <laughs> jabbing at people with comments and maybe even the knife exactly. once in a while <laughs> But um, but uh, June always had a comeback. She was like one of the few people I knew, especially like a faculty member who didn't hesitate to get down in the trenches and I could never get one past her. She would always be right back in my face. So eventually I stopped making wisecracks to her because I knew she was coming back. But one other sort of weird memory, I was trying to think of this on the way here. Um, and I was talking to my wife who was also 
on the paper. Villanova gave me, besides lessons in life, gave me my wife, who I just married in May, 29 years after we first met. It took 29 years. I had to make sure it was right, but we got married. But, um, but anyway, so I was asking her for stories too. But one thing I always remember, one time we were at June's house or apartment for some reason, like a, a Villanovan social thing for the others, and she went on and on about Lena Horne and how she loved Lena Horne and saw her on Broadway. And to this day, anytime I hear Lena Horne's name, I think of June Lytel. It like, always reminds me of her. But uh, she will be missed. It's hard to believe she's gone because she was so lively and full of spirit. So uh, I'll tell you real quick, Mike. Currently, I'm, I'm in the insurance industry. I went to law school after Villanova. I went to BC, practiced law for five years, and now I'm in the insurance industry. I have a consulting firm. So I'm the CEO, but it's only one person. So I'm also the last guy on the list. But so first year, uh, Villanova, first week, I signed up for the paper in 1980. And Beth, who I didn't realize is here, was the sports editor. And so I signed up for the sports department. And she, I go up to the office for some reason. I don't know how this luck befell me, but she said it was the first. It was our last year of Division One A football, and we had a home game. It was the first game against Richmond. And she says to me, Larry, all the senior editors were going on some. I think they called it a retreat. It was probably a party somewhere. <laughs> but she says we're all going on a retreat, and so you're going to cover the home football game. And this is my very first assignment, right? And so I didn't know anything. She was. Here's your press pass. I go, oh my God, this is awesome. I'm going to show this at the tailgates. I have a press pass. And she says to me, now, I know you don't know much about the team yet. Pay attention. There's one particular player. After a game, try and get an interview with him. His name is Howie Long. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll try. You know, I didn't know anything about it. So one of us has gone on to a great career in the media. I won't tell you which one. You try and guess for yourself. But we lost the game 7-3. to three. He blocked a punt. I'm in the locker room. Sitting down, he's bigger than I am standing up. And he was crying his eyes out. I still remember. I was so intimidated. Here's this gigantic football player crying his eyes out. And I was an idiot freshman. I'm like, uh, Howie, can I ask you a couple questions? And I will never forget. He stopped crying, and he totally composed himself. He was such a gentleman, such a nice guy. And I asked, like, this great question. How did it feel to block that punt? Like, you know, I was like, stupidest question you could ask. But he was very polite and kind and patient. You know, he could have easily said, you know, you're from the school paper. Leave me alone. So that was my first experience with Villanovan. Four years later, I ended up being the sports editor when I uh, was a senior. And it was a great experience. I'm just going to tell you two lessons I think I learned. So one of my proudest accomplishments professionally is I wrote a book in 2008 about the insurance industry, my segment, which is professional lines, which uh, insures like boards of directors and uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, basically for their uh, professional acts. So malpractice in a way. So I wrote a, a book in, in 2008, sort of the history of professional lines, but tinged with some other things, a lot of war stories. I ended up interviewing over 400 people. So two most valuable lessons I learned in this process. The first one is there's a saying that it's, it's very accurate, and I hope the people over here are listening too because it'll help these students. It's uh, you have to schedule greatness. So when I decided to write this book, it was about 2005, and a few people I knew in the industry had retired, some others had died, and I said, you know what, it's a shame. These people are leaving the industry. No one's ever going to know what they did, what their accomplishments were. I'm going to write this book, sort of an oral history. So for the first year and a half, I said, whenever I get a chance, I'm going to work on this book. So in a year and a half, I had 20 pages done. Because it's like anything else in life. You want to work out, you want to paint a picture, write a book. If you say, I'll just do it when I get a chance, you never do it because everything fills up your day. So then I took this job. I was living in Manhattan. I took a job up in Westchester County that required a one-hour commute on a train each day, both ways. So I said, I'm not going to read the New York Post when I get on the or New York Times, excuse me. Did I say New York Post? But uh, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to read the paper. I'm going to open my laptop and work on this book. So I had a forced schedule every morning for one hour up, one hour back. Some days I would get one paragraph written, but it adds up if you just stick with it and keep it to your schedule. 
So in the next year and a half, I went from 20 pages to 376 pages just by keeping that schedule. And no matter what you want to do, you got to schedule your greatness. I learned that because at the Villanova, when you had deadlines, there was no pushing it back. You had to have the article done. It had to be in come hell or high water, or your name or your, your section is going to be out there with no articles, and you'd be embarrassed and all those things. So that sort of was the first sort of lesson I learned in keeping a deadline. They say goals without deadlines are just dreams. You really have to set a deadline for whatever you want to do. And I, I learned it on the Villanovan, and it came to fruition in my personal life. So the next uh, aspect of the book, that, and I did learn a lot of lessons, but I'll just to give you the second most important. There's a Canadian minister named Basil King. I don't know if he's still alive, but he had a saying, be bold and great forces will come to your aid. So my thing was, when I was here at the uh, paper at Villanova, you know, I got to interview Howie Long, Dean Smith, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, and I just went in and said, screw it, I'm going to give it a shot. And, you know, these people would stop and talk to you and, and give you the time of day. And you really can't be a shrinking violet. You just have to get out there and assert yourself. So when I finished the book in November of 2008, uh, the publisher sends me a bunch of copies, uh, sort of the promotional copies. And I started sending them out to people, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to send these to some big-name people, see if I can get a quote so we could sell. All the proceeds from the book goes to four different charities. So I didn't really feel self-conscious when I was writing the book, and I was calling up CEOs of companies, asking them for their time. All the money was going to charity. Um, and a few things fell into place during that process, which I won't go into right here. But So I take a copy of the book, and I mail it off to Warren Buffett in Omaha, Nebraska. And I had no connection to Warren Buffett, never met him, didn't know him or anything. I said, you know what, what do I have to lose? So I was bold, took a chance, send it off. A week later, I get a call from a secretary on my cell phone. She goes, Larry, this is Deb Bosonic, personal assistant to Warren Buffett. And she was just at the State of the Union this past year. I don't know if you saw her. But um, so she, she, I go, <laughs> like, uh, yes, yes, Deb. And I, she goes, Mr. Buffett got your book, but unfortunately, he's too busy to read it. But he thanks you for sending it. And I said, well, thank you for calling. Most people would throw it in the garbage. I'd never hear from him. I appreciate the call. So I hang up. My, I was with my sister and some friends who were at the beach. Oh, that was Warren Buffett's assistant, yeah, blah, 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 big man. But he wasn't going to read it. So that was November of 2008. July of 2009, right after Fourth of July weekend, I opened my email one morning from Warren Buffett. And I was like, no, freaking way. I figured one of my friends is paying trick on me. Larry, I read your book. I totally enjoyed it. I hope all my insurance managers read this book, blah, blah. And he said specific things that let me know he really did read it. He wasn't just, and I was shocked. I said, I cannot believe this. So it was a Thursday when I got the email. I waited till Monday to respond. I talked to some of my friends because I wanted to use his quotes to help sell the book because I figured if somebody sees Warren Buffett's name, they just buy it. You know, everybody wants to be like Warren Buffett, especially in the business world. So one of my friends said, well, he said he hopes all his insurance managers get a copy. Why don't you send him 10 copies and ask him if he can use his quotes? Because I didn't want to just use them and then have him have a lawyer call me. Oh, that was just between him and you. He's not pushing your book. So Monday morning, I write him back an email. I said, uh, Dear Warren. It took me about half an hour to decide, Dear Mr. Buffett, Dear Warren. Finally, I said, He called me Larry. I'm calling him Warren. Screw it. So I said, Dear Warren. I said, Thank you very much for your kind comments. Uh, I'm having sent 10 copies of my book to your assistant from the publisher. Please give them to whoever you'd like. They're complimentary on me. And then I said, and this is not quid pro quo, but of course it really was. I said, it's not quid pro quo, but do you mind if I use your very kind comments in our advertising to sell the book? As you know, all the proceeds go to charity, and you know, he's a big philanthropist, so I knew he'd like that. So I said, uh, if you say no, that's fine. I totally understand. I'm just happy you read it and sent me the email. But you know, if you did say yes, it would help us sell the books. So I send this off at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, and I'm thinking, you know, he's always on CNBC, traveling all over. It's probably going to be a long time since I hear back. 
One hour later, he writes back, and he says, Larry, I'd be delighted. So use my quotes. I hope you sell every copy, and the charities get a big check. And so ever since then, the book has almost sold out. We, we printed 4,000 copies. And uh, I've actually emailed him three or four times since on different issues, and he writes me back like within an hour. It's unbelievable. The guy is really, and it all because I just was bold and took a chance. And that's why I would say, whatever your endeavors, especially people like Kendra who are students now, and you know, go out into the world, just take a chance. Don't hold back, and schedule your greatness. Well, thank you for. <laughs> I joined the dark side of the forest after that. <laughs> um, I was introduced to the Villanovan as a freshman, the same year as, as, as Larry. I was in Stanford Hall. Father Gallagher was RA there and uh, a longtime friend. And I uh, knew Father Gallagher back when I was uh, in Trenton at uh, Incarnation Parish. And he used to come and visit. Um, so it's always nice to see Father Gallagher. It's been a long time. Um, I lived in Stanford Hall. And somehow or another, I finagled a way where I stayed in Stanford Hall on the same room, on the same side of the room, 245D for four straight years. Um, I never had to live off campus. I had three homes when I was a student at Villanova. The uh, 245D, 201 Doherty, and the second floor of the field house. And all those roads kind of converged. Um, my, ne my next door neighbor in the dorm was a gentleman by the name of Bill Clark, who was an, a writer and an editor at the Villanovan when, when Beth and Marianne were there. And he said, we need writers. And I had actually come to Villanova under um, probably misconce misconception that I was going to be an artist. I was going to draw comic books and do animated cartoons, and then I was accepted to Villanova because I had connections to the football program and they brought me in on a partial scholarship as a student manager of the football team. Uh, I did Howie Long's laundry. Uh, <laughs> and Bill Clark came to me one day and he says, we need writers at the Villanova and do you want to do you want to write? And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. So they assigned me a story. I, I think it was a university senate meeting or something. I showed up and I, 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 I covered it like a I was covering the Watergate hearings or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote a story, and he edited it and worked with me on it, and kind of sparked a, a, um, my creativity in a way that instead of becoming a cartoonist or an animator or all those other crazy ideas I had, I decided I wanted to become a writer. So uh, through Bill and through other people at the Villanova and Beth, uh, Dave Kosky and a few other people, I started going up to the Villanova and, and writing stories once once every two weeks or so, and by the end of my freshman year, um, I was asked if I wanted to be an assistant news editor. I said, sure, why not? So I came on the staff as an assistant news editor my sophomore year. Uh, at the same time I was doing that, I had been the student manager of the football team. They dropped the program on April 14, 1981. Um, that became kind of like a focal point of my journalism career at Villanova because I became the staff writer covering the football situation. So for the next three and a half years, I covered everything that had to do with dropping football, how they're going to bring back football, what would they do if they brought back football. So that became my beat. And when Father Donahue was speaking about the Father Driscoll's file, 
of Villanovan clippings. <laughs> I am certain that my name is was flagged in that file several times because Father Driscoll, on at least three occasions, called me personally into his office for one-on-ones in which he he explained to me what I was doing wrong or how upset he was with something. Um, and I had gotten to know his secretary so well because of my frequent visits to his office that she actually left me uh, a, a statue in her will when she passed away. Um, <clears throat> it was just an interesting time and uh, getting, to, getting to work at the Villanovan and then at the same time I was working in the athletic department, they dropped football. I had become uh, part of the orbit of the sports information office which is the public relations arm of the athletic department. And I would go in there two or three days a week. I would go into the Villanova office, Villanova office two or three days a week. And um, I, never, I never really spent much time in my dorm room. But I was speaking earlier, I had a um, manual portable typewriter. And I would pound out stories on my manual portable typewriter. And I would bring them into the office. And we would, we would use our uh, different, uh, fold them in, in half and submit them for consideration and Professor Lytell would scrutinize them carefully and Bill Clark would scrutinize them carefully and Len LaBarth and others would scrutinize them carefully and I learned a lot of things. I still have my 1981 edition of the AP Style Manual <laughs> on my desk. Uh, I consult it frequently. Um, Professor Lytell was a great influence on me. Um, I, for some reason we would have rather spirited discussions about pop culture. Uh, for those of you who did not know her or only know her through her reputation, Professor Lytell was the type who would um, proofread billboards as she was driving to, <laughs> to and from a location. And she would come into the to the Villanova office or she would come up to the, to the print shop and she would say, I just saw this billboard and this is spelled wrong. Or this is spelled. And we would, we would laugh because we really had, at, at that time, you had no you had no reference point. You had to be in the car with her. You know, it wasn't like today where we're so uh, digitized and, and, and networked. Um, the other thing I also remember was she was very current on pop, pop culture. And you mentioned going to her apartment. I thought it was the most sophisticated apartment I had ever been in. You know, I, had, I, I, was, I was just some schmuck from Trenton. I didn't know any, any better. And we went to her apartment one night, and I was like, it was like being in the uh, Algonquin Round Table. And... Um, I just remember how sophisticated she 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 was to me and to our, my colleagues. I remember her uh, her nails and her bracelets, and she would stick a finger out at you, and the bracelets would shake. And she had her initial on one of her nails uh, in like a jewel form. And um, we got into this heated argument one night about Billy Idol, <laughs> which you know. Half people, half of the people in this room probably have no idea who Billy Idol was, but at that particular time, he was an up-and-coming uh, rock star, and she just despised him. <laughs> and she, she described in graphic detail what she was going to do to him if she ever saw him in person. And that just, that's something that stuck in my mind, along with Professor Murphy speaking about discussing Hemingway, whether there's motorcycle gang, or uh, various other anecdotes along the way. Um, I had Professor Lytell for class on many occasions. I took women's studies uh, just so I could have her for class. I took journalism just so I could have her for class. Um, I just really enjoyed her as a person, and she was a great inspiration to me. And um, 
after I graduated from Villanova in 1984, I was fortunate to be offered a full-time job at the university in that within days of my graduation. And one of the things I'll always remember about Professor Lytell was that on the day of my graduation, right outside this building, she came over to me to let me know that I had been accepted into the graduate school of Villanova and, uh, for, the Engl for the English uh, uh, master's program. And she was the one who told me that. I had not heard from anybody else yet. But that made my graduation that much more, like, that, that just colored the whole day even more. I, I had graduated, I had been accepted into Villanova Graduate School, and I had gotten a, a job in the athletic department full time, all on the same day. And um, I couldn't have done all those things without those four years of trudging up to 201 Doherty, typing away on the, on the rare electric, uh, IBM selectric typewriters. Uh, and we, you mentioned the deadline being Sunday night and, 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 and getting the, everything has to be ready by Tuesday and, 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 and on, the, on, the street, on the street by Thursday morning. We were, have our editorial meeting on Monday night uh, we had to have our stories turned in by like five o'clock Tuesday night, typewritten, and uh, we would edit them on uh, Tuesday night. We would um, send them to the printer on uh, <coughs> Tuesday night for Wednesday morning. Thursday morning, we would go over to the printers and actually do the paste up, cutting and pasting the articles themselves. And Friday morning, they would be delivered to campus, and then. Uh, we had to do a lot of the distribution and the handouts, and, and they would be all over the place. And um, one of the things I always remember is the stacks and stacks of the previous issues in 201 Doherty. All of us kind of crammed in there trying to write stories on deadline. Um, people calling and asking if you could help with this. I remember Dean Balsamini was a classmate of ours. He had been doing freelance writing for like the Suburban and Wayne same time he was working for the Villanovan and he was doing all these other things. Dean was a bit of a character even then and he came to me one day, I'm sitting there working on some story for the Villanovan and he says, I'm supposed to interview, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the boxer. Billy Idol? No. <laughs> it, it was a, um, Marvin Hagler? It was Marvin Hagler. Yeah. It was Marvin Hagler. He says, I'm supposed to interview Marvin Hagler at one o'clock. Can you do it? <laughs> I said, sure. And I had no idea why he was interviewing with it, but I knew in the headlines that Hagler had a, had a big fight coming up. But I had also heard, and this is pre-internet, this is pre-talk uh, radio, this is pre-a lot of things. But I also had heard or read in, in one of the papers that Hagler was very upset about a recent fight that he had had that he felt that he, he should have, he, he had won it on points, but it was a uh, technicality that he lost the fight. So I asked him a couple questions right off the bat, introduced myself to him, started talking to him on the telephone, and then I asked him about the disputed fight, and he was like, oh, I'm glad you asked me about that. Nobody's asked me about that in a long time. And he went into this long uh, answer about this fight, and it was just an amazing opportunity, that, uh, as Larry mentioned, you, you had these amazing opportunities to talk to people, that, and you could talk to them as equals, even though you were an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old undergrad. You know, I would go into Father Driscoll's office and he would say, come on in, Jim, let's talk for a few minutes. And I would sit there and he, he would uh, uh, answer my questions. I, I met so many of the, of the university's administrators and officials. And then when I began to work here, um, they would all remember me because I had talked to them in the past. And then on that side of the, of the ledger, I got to work with some of the 
rising talent that were working at the Villanova and on the sports side, they would come in and ask me for a press pass to the football game, or they would come in and ask me uh, if they could have access to the basketball game and things like that. So I was able to continue my relationship with the Villanova for another 11 years. Um, I left Villanova in May of 1995, went to work for a professional tennis tour for two years, and traveled all around the country as their PR person. And then I went to work for an internet company in, in early 1997 and uh, helped them uh, with their PR and marketing and got them to a very successful IPO in the summer of 1999. And that's when I started my own business. So I've been, I've been on the, the print side, I've been on the digital side, I've been on the sports side, I've been on the um, business side, I've been on the entertainment side. I've had my hands in a lot of different things, and I wouldn't have had the ability to do all the different um, things that I have done in the last how many years if it hadn't been for those experiences and it hadn't been for Bill Clark coming to me one day and saying, would you like to write for the student <laughs> newspaper? He was also trying to recruit me to be a part of uh, Villanovans for Anderson, which was <laughs> John Anderson's third-party candidacy for the 1980 presidential but that's a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> yes. If I understand correctly, you were then a Villanova employee in 85 when the basketball team was yes. big. General impressions of the time? <laughs> I, have, I have kind of a weird perspective on that um, because the athletic department and the university took probably everybody to Lexington, Kentucky for the Final Four, except me. Oh. They literally needed somebody to stay behind to run stuff because the same weekend of the Final Four, the baseball team was playing their home opener, the softball team was playing their home opener, there was a track meet in the stadium, there were two lacrosse games, uh, there, was, there was a multitude of other uh, collegiate events going on in the in the pavilion, well the pavilion wasn't there yet, in the, in the stadium, the field house, and the baseball field. So they left me behind to be the acting athletic director on campus. So I watched the game, the, the, the game against Georgetown, on Roly Massimino's couch on his TV e eating a Rosemont takeout pizza. <laughs> and one of the other things that was kind of uh, left to me was campus security. So here I am, 21, 22 years old, and they said, we need you to help coordinate campus security. So we're going to have the state policemen report to you. <laughs> so I had the head of campus security and about 10 Villanova security guards, as well as about 10 Pennsylvania state troopers reporting to me during the course of the evening. So I'm proud to uh, report this is the first time I've really publicly spoken about this, but that entire perimeter of Ethan and Lancaster was completely untouched by, <laughs> by uh, celebratory demonstrations. I, I actually saw a state trooper hit a guy over the head with a flashlight who was trying to get into the field house at like 1 o'clock in the morning to celebrate. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay. Um, it, was a, it was a crazy time. It was, very, it, was, it was very unexpected because the team had not done well in its last regular season game. They had lost by like 30 to Pittsburgh, at Pittsburgh. And then they had not done that great in the in the Big East tournament, but they got into the NCAA tournament and they played, uh, they played their hearts out. I've I've been I've been friends with a lot of those guys ever since and before that, um, 
And when the, when the the game ended and Villanova had won, and I'm sitting in the office with the state troopers and the pizza boxes and <laughs> and what have you, and there was just this sound from across the street of just like this roar of of excitement, and you could. We went out, there used to be a hill at the top of Ithan and Lancaster out in front of the field house, and there was a circular driveway. So we went out to the top of the hill to watch as everybody came streaming out of the dorms. And they were coming out of uh, Sullivan and Sheehan, and, and they were coming out of uh, Stanford and, um, and uh, Good Council. Good Council, which were really the only, the four big dorms at the time. And they're coming, and they're all coming to the intersection of Lancaster and Ithan. And they're tearing bushes out of the out of the intersection, and they're throwing bushes into the middle of the street, and they're setting them on fire. And then there's this parade of cars that starts coming down from Ithan Avenue, they're coming down into Bryn Mawr, into Rosemont. They're all going to go to Kelly's and what have you, and they're coming down, and they're honking their horns. So we're standing there, we're watching this this impromptu parade come by, and my sister was a freshman at a, no a sophomore at Immaculata at the time. And I hadn't seen her for a couple days, but I would I, I saw her a lot. Um, and the parade of cars is coming down Lancaster Avenue, and they're all beeping their horns, and they're shouting, and they're throwing cans, and, and there's bushes and shrubs on fire in the middle of Lancaster <laughs> Avenue. And I see this convertible with all these girls. Some of them are on the hood of the car. Some of them are in the back of the car. Some of them are in the car standing up, and they're all got beer cans. And I look, and it's my sister. <laughs> and Larry will probably remember. I think Joanne will probably remember. I've never had a beer in my life. I never went to Kelly's. I was like the only Villanova alumnus had never been in Kelly's. And here's my sister swigging a beer on her way down to Kelly's to celebrate the national championships while I coordinate the police activities. <laughs> so it was a very interesting time. I also was the next day, as they were all flying back from Lexington and they were coming, they had a parade in Center City, Philadelphia. And I was the only person, again, in the athletic department. So all the phones are programmed into this one office. And the phone, phone is ringing off the hook. And I'm answering every call, and I've got, and this was before voicemail, so I've got all these little wire out pads, and I'm writing everything down. And I've got a stack of pink slips for the athletic director, for Coach Massimino. And one of the calls comes in and goes, please hold for President Reagan's office. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so it's, I, don't, I, I, don't know if, I don't know who the person was, but we would like to invite uh, Coach Massimino and the team to visit the White House as soon as possible. And, you know, oh, well, thank you. Uh, they're in the middle of a parade right now, but, but <laughs> let me get all the information and I'll make sure we schedule. So I got the phone number, I got the person's name, I write everything out, you know, visit President Reagan at the White House, and I, and I put it over a separate stack. And the bus with the team comes, da comes down Lancaster Avenue. It's about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they pull into the, the field house parking lot. And Coach Massimino's the first one out the door. And I'm standing there with my little pink note. And I said, Coach Massimino, congratulations. <laughs> he, it's no secret that he did not, did not like me much. And I said, Coach Massimino, I have a message for you from President Reagan. He would like you and the team to come and visit the White House as soon as possible. And what he said to me was unprintable. You, <laughs> you, you can imagine what it might have been. And then he slammed the door in my face, and, and I walked away. 
So two weeks later, they went and visited the White House, and there was all this. Did you get invited? I did not get invited. <laughs> but I do, I do have a championship ring. Oh, that's cool. Which doesn't fit anymore. But I have a championship ring. Um, I, I always like to say that I was not paid very well when I worked for Villanova, but I have enough jewelry and rings and watches <laughs> and drinking glasses to last me the rest of my life. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.